Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Welcome back. Our tradition is to go around and say our names uh, before the, the speaker begins. And I like to slow us down a little bit by having, um, if there's a particular word or phrase that has come up for you in the last couple of days or weeks, uh, that you'd like to share, feel free to share that. And if you would like to pass, please say pass. And um, my name is Peter Dell. And um, trouble. Uh, my name is also Peter. Uh, panic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jim. Evergreen. I'm David. Chris. I'm Paul, and uh, my dog Indy passed on this week, so she's pretty much a I'm Leonard Purpose. Rich. Don't know what the word is. I'm <laughs> Kay. I'm Barry. Challenge. Joe. George. Mindfulness. Uh, Jim. Outcast. Peter. Uh, patience. Solis. Uh, disoriented. Philip and Peter stole my word. Patience. <laughs> Michael. Leaning in. David, process, and Jackie, help. Uh, Howard, decort, less force, more flow. Teach, William, acceptance. Howard, song down. Cast, birthday. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Carl. Um, busyness. Jeffrey, do you want to join? Oh, um, my name is Jeffrey, and you'll hear more words than you want to from me. <laughs> 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 it's 
So Jeffrey Schneider is our, uh, our speaker today. Um, he is a priest at the San Francisco Zen Center, where he's practiced since 1978. He began the Zen Center's program for people in recovery in 2000, and has taught and led retreats on Buddhism and recovery in various places in California, Texas, Missouri, and North Carolina. He is a member of the California Association of Drug Alcohol Educators. Welcome, Jeffrey. Thank you. Um, that description that uh, was just read was actually attached to some of the stuff I do in recovery, so I do other things too, um, buddhistically, as it were. So anyhow, I'm, I'm really grateful to be here, and I'm also a little intimidated. Um, usually when I speak, I, I'm fairly familiar with at least some of the people, and I don't know very many of you, and I don't really know um, what... Um, your familiarity is with Buddhism. So some of you may, you know, be Buddhist scholars, and some of you may be very new. And so I don't know what the right what the right note is to hit. So please excuse me if I say anything that seems ridiculously simplistic, and or if I say anything that seems um, way over your head. Um, interestingly enough, um, you know what I wanted to talk about today was balance. So we'll, we'll see if we can strike a balance. And um, I'm sorry, I forgot your name. Paul. Paul, would you like to put your the picture of your of your dog on the altar for the time that we're doing this? Thank you. And I'm sorry for your loss. Um, so, uh, I, I, I have practiced for uh, most of my Dharma life in the Zen tradition, and as some of you may know, the tradition of Zen uh, has a lot of stories in it. It's sort of how we pass the teaching down uh, through our sort of family tales. So I'd like to, I'd like to begin by, by, um, by offering you a story um, from um, our collection of tales. Uh, only slightly updated. So two monks are walking down the road, and they're going on pilgrimage someplace. And it doesn't matter where they came from or where they're going for the purpose of our story. But you know, it's been a long, dusty road, and you know, the monks walked every place they were going um, back in the days when monks walked on pilgrimage. And you know, they were tired and hot and thirsty, and you know, they're walking down the road, and lo and behold, there's a bar. So two monks walk into a bar. <laughs> and this is not what you'd call a really high-class bar, okay? So, you know, there's sort of a core sign over the bar, and sitting at the bar, there's this sort of washed-out blonde, puffing on a Virginia Slim and, you know, nursing a rum and coke. And in the back, there's a couple of sort of sloppy-looking guys in dirty T-shirts playing pool. And uh, there's really bad country-western music on the... Uh, on, on the jukebox, and the whole place smells like stale beer and stale cigarette smoke. So our two monks are standing there, and they look around, and one of them takes his, his pilgrimage staff and pounds it on the ground and says, Just here is the summit of the mystic peak. And his friend looks around and says, Yes, what a pity. <laughs> <laughs> So there really is a Zen story. I, the bar is extra, but it really is a Zen story. Um, 
And so when I talk about balance, um, well, maybe that comes a little bit later. Um, you know, this story is very important to us because it, 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 illustrate, it illustrates, excuse me, both things, the absolute and the relative. You know, on one hand, you know, it's a dive. And on the other hand, it really is the uh, summit of the mystic peak. You know, another way of looking at it is, you know, um, here we have a box full of animals making noises. Uh, that's us. Um, on the other hand, we have a room full of men who are trying to live their lives with dignity, grace, and spiritual values. And on the third hand, uh, you know, we have a, a vast Buddha field full of bodhisattvas. You know, and all of those things are true simultaneously. So, you know, in Zen we, we, we are very fond of the paradox, as many of you know. And it's not because we're trying to be cute but rather because the paradox or the contradiction expresses the way we experience our lives, or at least so I believe. And, you know, Suzuki Roshi said, uh, all of Soto Zen Buddhism can be summed up in two words, not always so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and um, Mel Weitzman, <coughs> Sojin Roshi, who is the... Um, was a student of Suzuki Roshi's and uh, is the current abbot of the Berkeley Zen Center, uh, said uh, once that uh, our, our Zen practice can be summed up in the two words, yes, but. <laughs> so there, there are always at least two, two sides to our practice and to our understanding. And in, um, in, in sort of scholastic Buddhism, sometimes we talk about these as the two truths the absolute truth and the relative truth. And what's important to remember is that they don't cancel each other out. The absolute truth and the relative truth are both true. It's just that the relative truth is relatively true, right? And the absolute truth is absolutely true. Um, to illustrate that, I'd like to, read, I'd like to read a little something. Dogen Zenji was the 13th century monk, who Japanese monk, who went to China and brought uh, Soto Zen uh, what came to be called Soto Zen from China to um, to Japan, and he is the founder, considered the founder of this school. And shortly after he returned from China, he wrote something uh, in called the Fukan Zazengi, which is usually translated as the Universal Recommendation for the Practice of Zazen. Zazen being meditation. So these are the first two paragraphs of what he wrote. The way is basically perfect and all-pervading. How could it be contingent upon practice and realization? The Dharma vehicle is free and untrammeled. What need is there for concentrated effort? Indeed, the whole body is far beyond the world's dust. Who could believe in a means to brush it clean? It is never apart from one right where one is. What is the use of going off here and there to practice? So if each of us is from the get-go, um, Buddha nature, are endowed with Buddha nature, are perfect just as we are. Suzuki Roshi is also quoted as saying, each of you is perfect just as you are, and you could use a little bit of improvement. <laughs> and then the second paragraph. And yet, if there is the slightest discrepancy, the way is as distant as heaven from earth. If the least like or dislike arises, the mind is lost in confusion. 
Suppose one gains pride of understanding and inflates one own, one's own enlightenment, glimpsing the wisdom that runs through all things, attaining the way and clarifying the mind, raising an aspiration to esc esc escalate the very sky. One is making the initial partial excursions about the frontiers, but is still somewhat deficient in the vital way of total emancipation. So here he's pointing out the, the limits of the relative. So on one hand, you're perfect just as you are, and on the other hand, it's necessary to practice in order to realize that. Um, there's also another very important Zen um, uh, teaching called the, different, the merging of difference in unity, the Sandokai. And in that, in that it says, Right in light, there is darkness, but don't see it as darkness. Right in darkness, there is light, but don't grasp it as light. So this is the difference between um, form and emptiness, emptiness and form, the relative and the absolute. They're both complicit in each other, both contained in each other, both forms of each other. And yet, you know, we still have to get up in the morning and brush our teeth, no matter how, um, how much Buddha nature we got, if we don't want to get cavities. So, um, so we have so one way of talking about this sort of paradox or our um, way of looking at things is you know at relative and absolute uh, on a more um, functional level perhaps a way of talking about it is um, purity versus inclusiveness or wisdom versus compassion. So when we incline to one side, the side of purity, you know, on a, on a personal level, we can actually drive ourselves pretty crazy. You know, everything must be examined in ourself and our activity for the slightest bit of impurity. You know, uh, it's not good enough to be good, but is my motive completely pure? Mm -hmm. You know, when I do something good for somebody, is it because I want to feel good? Well, that's not pure enough. You know, so there's something impure and suspect about my activity. Um, you know, um, Am I acting in a completely and utterly selfless way? Is it good enough? Am I good enough? Am I doing enough? Is what I'm doing the absolute best and the most that I can possibly do? Um, this is how we drive ourselves crazy, you know. Um, is my meditation concentrated enough? Am I sitting enough? If I sleep in because I'm tired or feeling sick, am I taking care of myself? Or am I just an unlazy and great, ungrateful, a lazy and ungrateful student of the way? I mean, after all, Buddha didn't sleep in, right? Actually, this is, it's so wonderful to read this. In the early sutras, it talks about Buddha taking naps in the afternoon. I just love it. Um, but so we can we can we can really drive this drive ourselves crazy looking for purity, um, and for the absolute in our activities, you know, and. Uh, in this case, nothing that we do will be good enough or pure enough or enough enough. You know, um, it won't be enough to come here once a week if you're not sitting an hour every morning and an hour every evening and spending the rest of your time kissing lepers. You know, um, we can make ourselves pretty crazy in the, in the search for purity. Um, and you know, on an organizational level, another way of functional looking at functional purity or inclusiveness, you know, we only want those who are completely committed, who have no outside interests and are willing to commit their entire lives to, you know, the Dharma, or whatever you want to call it. And, you know, this can be a religious or political or uh, social 
um, organization. It really doesn't matter. The search for purity uh, also takes place functionally in um, in organizations. You know, there's no room for slackers or the half-hearted. And, you know, when I first came to San Francisco Zen Center, there was definitely a very strong element of that in in um, in the organization. It's it's somewhat less now, um, or I wouldn't be there. They would have thrown me out long ago. Um, but, you know, this taken far enough, you know, you can get into the need not only for committing oneself as far as activity, but you can get into... Um, Idea, um, ideological purity, and you know where you end up with is the you know the terror of the French Revolution, the you know the cultural uh, the cultural uh, revolution under Mao, the Puritans in New England, you know looking for um, trying to to rid themselves of every possible impurity, and ended up you know burning witches, you know are you know uh, people who are looking for absolute purity in their in their practices, Muslims and deciding that they need to blow themselves and other people up doing that. So this this, this search for um, purity um, is very, very can be can become very um, very destructive, you know. But on the other hand, we have the inclusiveness, you know, so we've got purity on one hand and inclusiveness. We want everybody to feel welcome, we want everybody to join in, we want everybody not to feel judged. And there's a problem with this too, of course. Because, you know, if anything goes and it's all good, then, you know, there's no, um, we find ourselves un unable to acknowledge the very real differences between systems of thought and ways of determining our behavior. You know, if everything goes, then, then there are no standards anymore. And, um, and we, con we condemn ourselves to being eternal dilettantes, you know, um, there is, uh, I think it's very important in order to develop spiritually to commit ourselves to a particular way and a particular practice. And, you know, I'm certainly not here pumping for Zen uh, because I don't think that that's necessarily the right practice for everybody. You know, in, in Buddhism, as you know, there are many, many different practices and many ways of practicing. And even, you know, and I'm not even pumping for Buddhism so much. But I am saying that in order to fully understand a way and to be developed by the way and to give ourselves to the way, you know, um, it's not all the same. You know, it's not all the same. Um, I cringe when I see books about, you know, Zen Christianity or, you know, uh, Jewish Buddhism or things like that, there really are differences and they're very important differences. So, you know, the, on one hand we have the problems of purity and on the, the other hand we have the problems of, um, of uh, too much lack of standards, of all inclusiveness. So, um, so on one hand, you know, we can look at it that way. We can also look at it, you know, wisdom and compassion. You know, with compassion, we feel for others. You know, the word compassion literally means with suffering. We feel the suffering of others and we want to, we are moved to do something about it. Wisdom allows us to step back from the suffering and see it as essentially empty without, um, without uh, essence, as it were. And without wisdom, 
uh, compassion becomes nothing but codependence, and it creates more suffering in the world, suffering for ourselves, and it renders us ineffective because we're, we're, we look at the entire suffering of the world and we become so caught up in it on a feeling level that we are ineffective in dealing with it. Wisdom, on the other hand, can become very cold, um, you know, just stepping back and seeing it all as empty, and we become, it becomes a reason, it can become a reason for non-engagement. And both of these are um, spiritual sicknesses. You know, so once again, you know, we're trying to, to find the balance the right way to um, to steer a course between between um, you know the polar opposites. Um, so you know in Buddhism we talk about our practice, uh, and we talk about our practice um, pretty much in in distinct in contradistinction to our beliefs. You know in the uh, in the monotheistic religions you know what is important is the expression of belief. You know, in Christianity, the creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. You know, in Judaism, the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. In Islam, you know, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. These are all um, statements of belief. In uh, uh, Buddhism, however, um, orthodoxy of belief is not uh, important, but rather... um, Practices, what we do, uh, is more important than what we say we believe. Um, so, in Buddhism, our statement of religious identity is one of action. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. These are activities which are open to interpretation. You know, how do I take refuge in Buddha? What does that mean? How do I take refuge in Dharma? What is Dharma? Where is the Sangha? Where is the community of those who practice together? So, um, so how do we how do we practice? How do we practice with our with our with our with our Buddhist faith, our Buddhist um, identity? And you know, once again, you know, we we go between um, um, absolutes. We try to steer the way, and of course, Buddha talks about the middle way. There's this wonderful story of this young man. And this is from this is from the Pali Suttas, so it's a very early story. And um, this young man was gently raised, and uh, it says he was so he was so delicate that he even had hair on the soles of his feet. <laughs> I guess he was carried around a lot. So anyhow, so he heard about the Buddha, and um, and he wanted to go see the Buddha. And and, the, and his mother said, "Well, dear, when you go to this, this, you could look it up. This is real, I'm not making this up. This is not like the bar." Okay, so his mother says, "Well, dear, when you go when you go to see the Buddha, make sure that you sit with your feet upwards, so he can see the the hair on your feet and how delicately you were raised." Anyhow, the guy the guy likes what the Buddha says. He says, "I want to become a monk." So the Buddha, you know, gives him the the the, the going forth, the ordination as a monk, and he becomes very determined to you know reach enlightenment by Tuesday. And the story is that he's he's walking, he's doing walking meditation back and forth in front of his, his little hut to the point that you know his feet have become raw and bleeding. I guess if you've never walked before, that's what happens. Um, and the Buddha goes to him and says, here, come, come here, sit down for a minute, let's talk. He said, when you were in the lay life, did you, did you play the lute? And you know, he being a well, well-born young man was given music lessons. And he said, oh yes, Lord. He said, well, when the lute was tuned too tightly, 
Did it make good music? He said, oh no. I said, well, what about when the, the strings were too slack? And he said, oh no. So he said, well, it's like that with our practice. Not too tight and not too slack. I like that story. Um, you know, when I first came to, to Zen practice, um, the first uh, interview that I ever had with a teacher, I had the question of uh, basically what is enough or how do I know if I'm practicing hard enough or if I'm practicing right enough or if I'm doing what I should be or if I'm putting enough effort into it. And, and you know, that's still my question. You know, many years later, that's still my question. And it's a question that I have to ask myself every day. And it reminds me of... Um, one of my favorites uh, of, in the Catholic tradition, who's St. Teresa of Avila. And one of the things that endeared me to her so much is that I read her, I read some, some things about her. One of the things that she said in one of her letters, she said, she was writing to one of the uh, sisters in one of the convents that she had founded, and she said, make sure that the nuns get enough sleep, especially the young ones, because otherwise it can lead to melancholia. And I always appreciated that. Um, St. Teresa of Avila was one of the few saints, as far as I can tell, who had a sense of humor as well. Um, this has nothing to do with it, but it's another story I just love, so I'm going to tell it. So it was a dark and stormy night, and uh, St. Teresa of Avila was riding her mule down the road, and the, the mule slips, and, and, and St. Teresa goes um, ass over tea kettle into a ditch. And she's lying there, you know, in the mud, and it's dark, and it's cold, and it's wet, and it's raining on her. And she looks up and says, if this is the way you treat your friends, no wonder you have so few of them. <laughs> I mean, you got to love a girl like that, right? So, you know, in, in Buddhism, one of the Eightfold Path, one of, one of the parts of the Eightfold Path is called right effort. And, you know, when we are given the Eightfold Path, or when we look at the precepts in Buddhism, what we are given is not a, a series of um, instructions, but rather we're given a series of questions. You know, what is right effort? You know, we always, have to, uh, we always have to ask ourselves that, I think, to keep our practice alive. And it's still a living, a living question for me. Um, you know, because included in right effort, I believe, is compassion for our, our own weaknesses. Not just um, you know, not just our strength, but our weakness as well, and uh, and I think that you know, um, I think that over the years or over the course of our practice, we don't so much answer this question or these questions as we sort of wear them down, or wear them out, or the questions change rather than 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 that we should find a definitive answer for them. So the question becomes not, am I good enough? Do I practice hard enough? Am I closing in on enlightenment? Are we having fun yet? You know, um, but rather the question turns and it becomes, I think, with, with, the, with our deepening of practice, you know, how can I live in the world in such a way to reduce the suffering of other beings in this world? So that becomes, I think, the central question for us. Not, you know, how do I get enlightened as fast as I can so I can leave all this shit behind? But, you know, what can I do finding myself in this world to be in it in such a way to um, be of service in relieving the suffering of others? And, of course, incidentally, my own as well. 
Um, and ultimately, as we ask these questions again and again, we come to realize the, the non-difference of self and other. And I'd like to read another thing from Dogen. This is a, um, from a relatively short piece of his called um, The Bodhisattva's Four Methods of Guidance. And I'm just going to read a couple of short sections. So one of, the, uh, one of them is beneficial action. And he said, beneficial action is to skillfully benefit all classes of sentient beings. That is, to care about their distant and near future, to help them by using skillful means. And just a gloss on that, skillful means is the way between wisdom and compassion. Okay? Uh, in ancient times, someone helped a caged tortoise. Another took care of an injured sparrow. They did not respect, expect a reward. They were moved to do so only for the sake of beneficial action. Foolish people think that if they help others first, their own benefit will be lost, but this is not so. Beneficial action is an act of oneness, benefiting self and other together. And then further down he says, identity action means non-difference. It is non-difference from self, non-difference from, non from others. For example, in the human world, the Buddha took the form of a human being. From this we know that he did the same in other realms. When we know identity action, self and others are one. Action means right form, dignity, correct manner. This means that you cause yourself to be in identity with others after causing others to be in identity with you. However, the relationship of self and others varies limitlessly with circumstances. So the, the, the notion then of my attainment or my enlightenment or becomes ultimately meaningless. And um, because you know we come to come to understand in a very visceral way, I believe, through through our continued practice that we are all in it together. We can't separate ourselves out. We can't separate anyone else out. And you know, so so this question of how we judge ourselves also becomes, I think, ultimately worn out. I mean, we can judge ourselves, and we can be judged by others. And it's important to remember, however, that there is no absolute judgment over us or others. You know, there's no divine presence standing behind us, looking over our shoulders and making marks, tick marks about whether we're, we're good or bad. You know, we proceed by cause and effect in this world of samsara. And um, and in that sense, we are on our own and by ourselves, uh, because there's nobody who's going to rescue us from our karma. But at the same time, <clears throat> the self we are alone with covers everything. So um, that is kind of what I wanted to say, I think, about balance and equilibrium and... Um, you know, uh, a couple of people used the word equilibrium in there, you know, when they gave their own words. And, you know, equilibrium was one of the ones that I thought, too, because I always find myself sort of, um, sometimes I'm fairly balanced, and other times I sort of seesaw between equilibrium and complete despair. Um, and, you know, it's okay. Um, they're both equally true, and they're both equally empty. And, uh, yeah. And uh, that's all I want to say. Thank you. So we do have some time for discussion and... Uh
and or questions or comments or whatever. So, please say something or not. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt. When when we talk, we also say our names so we get to know each other a little bit better. My name is Paul. Hey, Paul. And talking about how when you help uh, others to be happy, you become happy yourself. It reminded me of something that really struck me way back in like, kind of the college days of the theology course. And I think it was, was St. Thomas Aquinas. I don't know what his exact words was, were, but he said, you can't do anything that doesn't, that you don't think will make you happy. And it could be illusory. He wasn't going into those fine points, but what he was saying is you can't do anything just for God. You know, you, you know you're going to benefit yourself as well. So I think that's kind of uh, interesting. And I also, you know, we talk a lot in here about the political splintering that's going on within us and, um, and in our country. And it's, it's really a difficult practice to be really open and um, see all the people in the bar as bodhisattvas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good it's a good trick if you can do it. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Please, um, how does Zen Buddhism understand the non-dual nature of things? One of the things I'm hearing is um, balance. Balance presumes two sides. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I've uh, been attracted to about Buddhism is precisely the elimination of things as in contrast or mm-hmm. to each other, that all things, the non-dual nature of things. Mm-hmm. There is no good, there is no bad, mm-hmm. there is no right, there is no wrong, there is no practice, there is no non-practice, there is what there is. Yeah, right. And well, to it- be like present. Yeah. Well, right. Yeah. So if you if you stick there, you get stuck in non-duality, and you know that's also considered a spiritual sickness to be stuck in non-duality. So the idea, I think, is on a functional level to be able to move between duality and non-duality um, without getting stuck in either. But on on the other hand, another way of looking at it is that. Um, sometimes in Buddhism, in Zen, we talk about going beyond delusion and enlightenment. You know, and what that means, I believe, is um, letting go of our perception about reality and just experiencing it as it is. And you know, that's easier said than done, obviously. But um, but I think that often, for some of us, and I'm not making a, a universal statement, but for some of us who tend to be rather heady, um, we have to wear it down instead of letting it go. So some people, I presume, can just let it go. And some some of us have to work out the dialectic to the point that it just gives up under the sheer weight of itself. <laughs> I had a question about um, belief. Mm-hmm. This is something that I struggle with. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the things that led me here is this book called Buddhism Without Beliefs mm-hmm. by Stephen Batchelor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about, about 
Is there a balance of belief? And if so, is that the picking and choosing? Or um, you also talked about belief systems, how mm -hmm. Judaism is different from Buddhism. Mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, I, I, okay, well, there's um, this is really wonderful um, sutra in the early text, in the Pali text, called the Kalama Sutta. And so the deal is that, uh, the story is, that as most of you know, the Buddha was sort of a peripatetic teacher. He walked around northern India and talked to whoever wanted to talk to him. So he, he arrives at this town, uh, the sort of headquarters of the Kalama clan, and it's, it must be kind of like the Bay Area, because, you know, like they got everybody going through there. They got the gurus, and they got the saints, and they got the naked ascetics, and they got the brahmins and everything. And so, you know, so here comes this other guy. So, you know, he's, he's you know, Buddha sets up and, and, you know, a bunch of the town elders come. They say, so, you know, listen, you seem to be a nice enough guy, but we got a question for you. You know, we got all these people coming in and some of them are saying one thing and some of them are saying another thing and some of them are saying a third thing. You know, they all seem, you know, fairly convincing. Like, how do we know? You know, who, who do you listen to? And the Buddha says, well, look at it this way. Okay. Don't believe anything because it's been handed down. Don't believe anything because it's in your sacred texts. Don't believe anything because you respect the person who tells it to you and you think, oh, he's a monk, you should know. Don't believe anything because you've worked it out intellectually. Don't believe anything just because you like the way it sounds. But when somebody offers you a practice and putting it into, um, pra and putting it into practice, you discover that it leads to the relief of suffering and the happiness for you and others. Then you can try it. So, you know, Buddhism is intensely practical. Um, that's what the Eightfold Path is about. It's what the Four Noble Truths is about. Um, one of the things that, that really attracted me to Buddhism is that when I was a kid, I was fairly religious. And, you know, the religion that I was raised in um, told me I should be good. You know, it actually told me I should be a saint. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool, but how do I get from here to there? And the only answer that I got was something like willpower, you know, um, which didn't work for me. Um, but in Buddhism, we're given a lot of practices, you know, about how to get from here to there. And so uh, if it doesn't work for you, then don't do it, you know, uh, don't do it. Um, does that address the question? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, hi. I think what was really... What's your name? Leonard. Hi. Both implicit and somewhat explicit is the relationship always between the self and others. Mm -hmm. and so that the practice is never... Any kind of practice is never just you. Mm -hmm. It's always you in relationship. And I thought that was really very well done. The way you kind of implicitly kept referring to that. Well, it has to be, doesn't it? Because I mean, we can't we can't separate ourselves off. You know, one of the one of the uh, uh, things that I like to, uh, as an example, about the the intensity of our interconnectedness, is that you know when I speak, like right now, um, you know, my my voice begins you know in my brain and the air and you know my tongue going waggle waggle and my lips doing what they are and my breath freshening out. But when it hits your ear. Um, you know, it, it sets up a vibration in your eardrum and it makes those little bones do things and it actually causes 
electrical and chemical changes in your brain. You know, I mean, how close, how much closer than that can you get? You know, that's pretty intimate. You know, I'm in your brain. And, you know, when I'm looking at you, the reason I see you is because, you know, 93 million miles away, the sun is exploding and it turns into light and it bounces off you and it hits my eye and I see you and it creates chemical and electrical changes in my brain and in my mind. Um, so the fact that there's this, you know, um, unbreakable interconnectedness is, you know, seems to me just, it doesn't even seem to me a matter of spiritual faith, but rather of observable and, you know, obvious fact. Yeah. Please. Um, in your work in the community, mm-hmm. how is your practice challenged? Um, you know, it's really, to be honest, it's really challenged most by myself, not by other people. But by my continual feeling that I'm not doing it good enough, not not you know trying hard enough, not, you know all the stuff that I talked about here, my my greatest challenges come from my own uh, my own sense of inadequacy. Um, and then there's all those other people who never do what I want them to. But, you know, <laughs> but mainly, you know, my my biggest challenge is me. You know, always has been and, and remains remains that way too. Uh, and you know, but conversely, I think that you know, um, it's also a strength because I don't feel complacent about what I'm doing. Yeah. Hi, Jim. Hi, uh, Jeffrey. Uh, I'm Jim. Uh, I was intrigued by your talking about purity of organizations, uh-huh. uh, particularly nonprofit organizations. Uh, maybe there's not an answer to this, but I, it's such a fine line between following the intention of the organization and being open-minded and accepting and how to keep the people involved in that organization true to the intention. Mm-hmm. So I, I struggle with that with the different groups that I work with. And I, yeah, it's really hard and there's no answer. Um, I don't... Um, one of my favorite... Um, little anecdotes about that is um, most of you have probably heard of Dorothy Day who founded the Catholic Worker Movement. Well, when she first started that, you know, she she wanted to be like totally inclusive and and, you know, bring in the anarchists and the socialists and the Catholics and the civil rights people and the, you know, the whole shebang. And she had her teacher, her spiritual teacher was this guy named um, Peter Morin. And he said, and she put out, you know, like the first issue of the Catholic Worker newspaper, and nobody bought it, and even though it was only a penny. And he said, Dorothy, everybody's newspaper is nobody's newspaper, you know. And so I, I think that it's important that we know what we're doing and that we limit our activity. And that, you know, it's not that, that, we, that other things that we're not doing are not good or not necessary, but what can we legitimately take on and what can we not, you know, not squander our energy doing? And, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes things change. And then we have to sort of decide, well, is this something I can continue giving my, my, um, my energy to? Or do I need to move some, someplace else where I feel more in line with the goals? Yeah.
It's almost 10 of 12, and I think we need to stop for announcements then, but if there's any last... Okay, thank you. We do have some time for some announcements. Uh, we have a host today. Hi, I'm Tony. I'm your host today. And there are some goodies out there for you to enjoy. If you enjoy a cup of tea, please also enjoy washing it in my <laughs> rinsing it and putting it in the, the uh, drain. Um, on the side table over here, there's a sign-up sheet. If you'd like to be on the mailing list to receive the newsletter, please feel free to sign up. Um, after the social period, some people will gather by the front door to go out to lunch together. If you would like to join, please just hang out by the front door. And I will be walking around with the Dhamma Bowl so you can practice your generosity. And we suggest a donation between 5 and $8, but if you need a lot of practice, you can get a little more. <laughs> Hi, um, I have a pair of uh, front orchestra aisle seats for August Osage County on Wednesday, September 2nd in the evening. It begins at 7.30. Tickets are $35. The tickets were $35. A friend of mine had a conflict and had to drop out. And it's the most acclaimed play since uh, Angels in America stars Estelle Parsons I've got a couple. Um, first of all, for those, if there's anybody in here who uh, may be in recovery, I put some flyers out there. One is the every Monday night group that we have at the San Francisco Zen Center. Another is a nine-month ongoing um, group that we uh, are in our second year of doing. It's called Sangha and Recovery. Uh, the other thing is that the uh, Gay Buddhist Fellowship, along with the Gay Buddhist Sangha, along with the San Francisco Zen Center, um, coordinates um, correspondence with prisoners. Um, some of them come to us through the the newsletter, I believe, right? And so, as it happens, I'm the uh, coordinator, one of the coordinators, at least from the San Francisco Zen Center point of view, and I sort of handle all the mailing, and we can send books to prisoners and stuff like that. So, if anybody is interested in becoming a pen pal, I have a uh, sign-up sheet out there. I should say that, you know, if you do that, um, you know, all of the mail will come to the San Francisco Zen Center. Uh, you can use a pseudonym if you want. Uh, I will, you know, I'm, I take care of sending it on, making sure that you get it. You don't have to use your right name. You don't have to use your right address. It's a wonderful way to be of service. It'll take you about mm, maybe half an hour a month and 44 cents. Um, and, you know, you might want to think about how many of us are not doing time only because we didn't get caught. <laughs> <laughs> Baruch Golden is actually in charge of that for, for GBF, but is, uh, he's not here today. Is there anyone else who's participated in that who would like to, oh, would you guys like to speak about that? I, I agree. It's just a really powerful practice. And um, you'd be 
amazed, I think, by some of the, the feedback and interaction you get by writing to <coughs> prisoners that really develop some kind of significant relationships to it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been very helpful in my practice, too. Um, but also, logistically, I mean, we have, like, a first sample letter to send, so mm -hmm. it's very easy to get off to as a good start. There's guidelines that are sent to both you and the, the uh, inmate, so everybody knows, you know, you're not going to exchange photos, it isn't a romantic thing, you know, all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So it was really easy to get started, and uh, very rewarding as I and we also have a um, we also have a, a stash of money to send books and stuff, which would come out of that fund. So if you know if you do have a, a, a pen pal and he's looking for Buddhist books or something like that, you know it, it wouldn't be up to you to buy them. Um, so yeah, I would I would just you know I've been writing to prisoners for um, many years, and it's very little it very little uh, it takes very little and it. It's a wonderful opportunity for people because they come. They actually come to us looking for good spiritual friends, Kalyanamita, uh, who are willing to talk about Dharma with them. So it's it's a great thing to do. Um, well, I did get caught, and I did spend time in prison, and was the recipient of uh, letter writing, and uh, it was just a tremendous uh, resource. And uh, so encourage that if any of you are in a space where you want to offer that kind of compassion, the benefit is incredibly powerful. And, and I offer my gratitude to you uh, for those of you who do write prisoners. On behalf of the Sangha, everyone, I thank you uh, for today, you. for your, your Dharma and your teaching, and look forward to inviting you uh, mm -hmm. back again. Our speaker next week will be uh, Reverend uh, John Andreka. Uh, she's been with us a couple months ago. This is kind of like a repeat performance. <laughs> John, she's a real delight. So uh, the person who's been advertised for next week, um, uh, she uh, had to cancel. And uh, John is going to sit in for her. I think help us develop some practices, meditation practices around uh, physical Pain. It's one of the areas she's going to focus on. And um, uh, just kind of a, a, a cultural announcement, if you've been following the news, um, Time Magazine back in the 1980s uh, called Lutherans um, the quintessential demographic for middle America. And that's my background. I was a Lutheran Protestant minister. And uh, two days ago, at their national assembly, they voted uh, to welcome uh, gay, lesbian, ordained ministers as full, full roster members, and that they um, can be sexually active. I mean, they can, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they can love each other in the full expression of the term. A, a radical <laughs> shift. It was uh, certainly about a 25-year, 30-year battle uh, in, uh, in my tradition. It's a really wonderful, significant indicator of shift um, in the general American populace and culture. 
<laughs> there are registration forms for GBF's annual retreat outside the Don Hall. Uh, I think we're going to be full. We're not quite there. There are about eight spaces left, which is 30 people. Um, feel free to ask me any questions about it. This is a teacherless retreat, or I'd like to think of it as the wisdom and compassion of the Sangha is, <coughs> is the teacher. So, And there is space in the program for people to offer what they might want to offer. So please see me if, if you have an idea. Thanks. Yes. Uh, a couple of uh, LGBT Sangha, general Sangha announcements. The annual retreat at Spirit Rock is, is coming up in, in a couple of months. Uh, November uh, 9th it begins. And it's quite an event. Many of us in, in this Sangha have, have attended it over the years. They've expanded it by one night to ha be six nights this year. So it'll be seven days and six nights at the beautiful uh, Spirit Rock Retreat Center, LGBT um, Sangha, uh, taught by Arena Weissman, uh, Larry Yang, and Anushka Fernanda Poole, three gay Buddhist meditation teachers. Uh, and so registration is open now, and spiritrock.org is the, uh, the website, and there's a sliding scale, and there's scholarships, and so if you're interested in, in deepening your practice, boy, that is an opportunity to do that in a really very special container. Um, and the other announcement is that on Monday nights, for the last seven years, uh, Monday evening, 5.30 to 6.30, uh, there's an LGBT sitting group at the Gay Center. Uh, so if anybody is open and wants to have another half-hour meditation in, because if you're like me, uh, sometimes the weeks go by and this is my only opportunity to sit, you know? Uh, so Monday night at, at 5.30 at the Gay Center is uh, another a very similar format to this, half-hour meditation and a half-hour uh, Dharma talk or, or discussion instead of a, a full hour here. So that's every every Monday when the center's open. The LGBT retreat, is that a six-day or how long? It's six nights. six nights. Yeah, six nights. So I think okay. it starts on, on Monday and ends on Sunday this year, starting November 9th. Hi, I'm Jim Shulkin from uh, the Gay Buddhist Sangha, and I just wanted to mention that we're having a one-day retreat at Hartford Street on October 11th, and it's for GLB, LGBT aging. It's called the Bodhicitta of Aging. Uh, and Jeffrey Schneider and Dr. Stephen Tierney will be leading that one-day retreat. So it has some really wonderful elements talking about uh, sexuality, um, the feelings of loneliness and depression that we have as we age, and also the loss of physical physicality and our capabilities. So um, I invite you to uh, join us. We can stand and stand in circles for the dedication of the night. Would you like to look at it or would you like to read it? Or? Oh. Don't you go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of your key, pull my knees. By the power and truth of this practice, May all beings have happiness for the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow for the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow. 
and may all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion and live believing in the equality of all that lives. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.